0: You are listening to Gangland Wire, hosted by former Kansas City Police Intelligence Unit detective, Gary Jenkins.
1: If you saw my movie, Brothers Against Brothers, you saw Tom talking about an investigation that he was involved in involving the one of the subjects of that movie, Carl Sparrow. Well, there's a whole lot more to that story, and and I knew after we filmed him for the to help end off that movie because he was he was working an investigation just before Carl Sparrow got killed. There was a whole lot more to it, and, and I just figured I'd uh, get him back in here, and we'll do a podcast on it. So, if you haven't uh, if you haven't seen the movie Brothers Against Brothers, go out there and you can you can hit it up for a dollar ninety nine on uh, Amazon if you go to the more purchase options and get it in the uh, SD version. Give me a review when you get done with that, if you would, uh, and you'll learn a, a little bit more about how Tom fit into that. But we're going to talk about that whole investigation, which was a really interesting investigation. Tom, welcome. We're really glad to have you in here today.
0: Well, thank you. Glad to be here.
1: So, Tom, um, you're with the Missouri State Highway Patrol, and you were working with the Kansas City Police Department. Tell us, tell, uh, tell my wiretappers out there a little bit about your career with the State Patrol.
0: Well, I, uh, prior to this, I was uh, on the road for eight years, in uniform, and uh, then I transferred off the road into narcotics, and I uh, remained in narcotics the rest of my career, which ended up being uh,
1: 25 years in narcotics. Interesting. Now, now by on the road, uh, that means that you had a uniform and a, a marked trooper. And you're, you're the guy that's sitting out there running radar on the interstates that catches me when I go, pop over a rise about 80 miles an hour, right? That's me. That's right. I tell you, you're just like me. I could not have spent a career writing traffic tickets, could you? No. uh, I enjoyed (laughs) it. I always enjoyed it. But uh, once I got into uh, narcotics, I, uh, I really enjoyed that. So that's where I stayed. You know, the one thing I always thought about state troopers, you're out driving through the night, and, you know, it's late at night, there's not many cars around, and a trooper pulls you over, and he's by himself. And, you know, in Kansas City, there's always somebody, if you pull somebody over in the middle of the night, there's always somebody within four or five minutes away, more than likely, you know, 10 at the greatest and and probably less than that if you scream out for help over the radio. But a trooper is out there, and there's somebody maybe 20, 30 minutes away. That's right. That's uh, I, I always admired you guys courage to walk up on a car, 'cause folks, there's nothing more scary than walking up on a car that looks a little bit hinky, anyhow, in the middle of the night with nobody around. Uh, it's uh, you, you are ready when you walk up on that car. Yes, you are. <laughs> yeah, you sure are. You probably walked up on a few out in the middle of nowhere. You never know what you're getting into. That's for sure. Anyhow, okay, that's enough about uh, being on the road and. State trooper, and you were assigned here in Kansas City on the road. I believe when when this investigation started, Has you already started into narcotics. Yes,
0: that's right. I was okay. already in narcotics. You were already yes. in
1: narcotics. They had a narcotics unit in in the uh, early '80s, I guess. Yes. When this started, uh, yes. late '70s. I'm not sure when that narcotics uh, division started. We always had a a couple of detectives that that I worked with, Bill Bell and, and Harold Batmer, out at Troupe here in Kansas City. and But they did all kinds of different investigations uh, around the state. They didn't really particularly, they didn't really do narcotics uh, unless they had something special going on. But they started a special narcotics unit, I assume, in the 70s sometime.
0: Well, it started in the 70s. I got into it about in uh, 78.
1: Okay. And... Uh, so you got a call one day to, uh, to your commander's office, I would assume, and, and uh, told you he wanted you to go work with the Kansas City Police Department. What do you remember about that, Tom?
0: I just remember I was working undercover, and I had an investigation going in Columbia, Missouri, which is about 120 miles from Kansas City. And uh, <clears throat> they said that Kansas City wanted to start this investigation on a restaurant in Kansas City that was located really, really close to the Kansas City Police Department. And due to that location, most of the police officers had eaten at this restaurant because it's a good place to eat. And uh, they thought the owner would probably recognize all the Kansas City officers. So they said they just need a new face, a fresh face, to uh, go into this restaurant and uh, see if we could get close to this uh, restaurant owner with the uh, with the confidential informant and probably do some uh, illegal
1: transactions with him. Yeah, and then by that he means doing uh, what we call reverse stings. Uh What what, uh, The reverse thing is they go out and buy a bunch of, in this case, I think hams or gold jewelry or something that a shoplifter would steal or a professional criminal might steal a bunch of off of a truck dock or something and then take it into this fence and and sell it. And this man's name was uh, James Jr. Bradley. He was a mob-connected fence and one of the bigger uh, uh, purveyors of stolen property, I would say, in Kansas City. He sold stuff. He took it in as his restaurant. He he sold it a little bit out the back room of his restaurant, but he mainly had a, a, a retail location, if you will, down at the city market. That everything in there was was uh, stolen property. It was boosted property, and you got to understand. You say, well, why didn't you just walk in and arrest him for having stolen property? Well, you don't really know it's stolen. You don't know where it's stolen from. You think about it. When you shoplift something, nobody sees sees the uh, suspect carried out. Well you know, they come along at the end of the week, and they say, oh, we've lost, you know, we've lost 10 hams out of this grocery store. Next time we do some kind of an inventory, which probably at the end of the week. is probably, you know, like six months or a year, and they realize they've lost several hundred hams over the year that they didn't get paid for, and and uh, if they even, you know, look at it that close. So they don't even know that nobody even knows this kind of thing is stolen. So it's, it's a good way to make money, and I believe, you know, I, I don't. Correct me if I'm wrong, Tom. Do you remember the kind of the price, the markup, and the breakdown on that? How they figured what they'd pay you, and then what he probably got out of it.
0: They would pay us uh, one quarter
1: of the retail value of whatever we took to him. Yeah, that that's what I I remembered, and and then he'll sell it for about three quarters of the retail value when, when you go into his store at the uh, down at the at the city market. So it was, a, it was a sweet little deal he had going on. And, you know, everybody likes a good deal. And I I know a lot of people that have taken a good deal. And you know, we had Tigers that were buy, was buying, Tiger Records, was buying stolen record albums from uh, uh, different boosters. And I went in, everybody in the city went in and bought a record album. We all kind of knew that you got the brand new latest album for about three quarters of what it actually cost you in the store. But it's kind of it's it, I guess uh, it, it's it's crime, but uh, it's not dirty crime. It's not like narcotics, right, Tom? That's true. It's not. <laughs> Everybody likes a good deal. I once knew a policeman that that bought a, a TV uh, for a good for like a hundred bucks and like a three hundred dollar TV or four hundred dollar TV bought it for a hundred dollars from some guy and out of the trunk of his car. And when he opens up the uh, the box, it has a big concrete block in it. So. <laughs> <laughs> We all have our little corruptions. We try not to do that, and we try not to do it on a, a regular basis. Or a, uh, but uh, but we all have our little corruptions, and and I imagine all you wiretappers out there have all uh, maybe bought something uh, that fell off the back of the truck, shall we say, yourselves at one time or another. Uh, but then there's some of us that are that are in the uh, get paid to go try to stop that because it it costs great, the greater society, It costs us all, it costs us in higher insurance premiums, it costs us the. the the store that loses the property, they just pass it along to the next consumer in a form of higher prices. So, uh, you know, it, it really is, is uh, uh, detrimental to society, I would say, and to our commerce system. But anyhow, it's it's fun talking about this stuff, and and, and let's move along with uh, what what happened next. is uh, When you first came to Canada, you were living in Kansas City. I was yes, and and so then you were ordered to report to somebody. So tell tell the wiretappers how that went down.
0: Well, they said uh, to meet with Kansas City PD, and they said this this investigation wouldn't take very long, maybe a day, maybe two days a week, and because I lived in Kansas City, it was very convenient for me to do it. Uh, I was a fresh face, and and uh, then I could continue my investigation in Columbia the other three days of the week, and that's how it started. Uh, but it, it pretty quickly
1: uh, became a six-day-a-week investigation. Really? No. Now, what we had done is the Kansas City Police Department had gotten a guy named John Long uh, out of jail. He, he was—he had a case. I think it was a federal case. I'm, I'm having a hard time finding out exactly what that case was. But he had a case and, and made a deal with the— Judge and the prosecutor that we would not let him out of our sight. It'd be just like he was in jail he didn't post bond plus we didn't want him to knowingly post bond because there was all kinds of of uh, connections into the courthouse and and if he was all of a sudden had his bond lowered and he was able to post the bond, then people would start looking at him funny they just everybody thought that he had beat the case and and when he comes back out of jail, but we can't let him out of our sight so one of my jobs was to help babysit this guy. We uh, we got a house donated to us by a friend of uh, our commander who was in the real estate business. And and when uh, John would come back from working with Tom during the day, he would just hang out at that house. We'd watch TV together, and, and we'd have to stay up all night while he'd go in there and sleep. Uh, and John was a professional booster and, and a pretty good one at that. I was talking to a friend of mine recently and said, yeah, he had other boosters that would work for him on an occasion. He was also uh, into narcotics and and uh, known to sell narcotics and buy narcotics. And and he was really well-known among all these fences in Kansas City. He'd, been, he'd grown up here in Kansas City, so everybody pretty much trusted him. I trusted him more than I can even believe as we get into this story. So, uh... You met John. What was your first impression of John? He was, uh, you
0: could tell he was a, a criminal, a career criminal, yeah. just by how he acted and his uh, thought process. But uh, we, we, over the course of that six months, we, we became fairly good friends, I'd say. Of course, we were together six days a week, ten hours a day, ten or twelve hours a day. So uh, he, he gave me a lot of credibility just being with him, and he was able to... Uh, to sell,
1: me, to the people that we were meeting. Right, you could tell. I guess the way other people, with these fences and and other criminals out there, and in, in the bars and stuff, you guys went to, the way they treated him, they had a certain respect for his uh, his criminal ability. I guess that's true. Yeah, mm-hmm. <laughs> everybody knew what he could do or what he had done. Yeah. And so you start going into Junior Bradley's. It's downtown. It's called Pumper Nick's Deli. Uh, every courthouse employee, every policeman practically, and city hall employee, and, and lawyer's office employee and lawyer went in and ate lunch at the Pumper Nick Deli at one time or another. It was, it was good food. It was inexpensive. It was quick and down and dirty, and you were out, and he was a good guy. Everybody liked Junior. I uh, remember the downtown Footbeat guy just, just loved Junior. <laughs> he, when, when we ended up arresting Junior one time, he w- he was just distraught. He was, like, bemoaning the fact that Junior got arrested. So <laughs> anyhow, uh, uh, so you first went into Junior's, and, and what, what kind of stuff did Junior want? The first time we went in there, we took
0: some uh, gold chains and uh, I think it's some gold uh, rings. And uh, he, he bought them. And at that time, he said he would take uh, hams that he could sell, of course, in his store, um,
1: shotgun shells, uh, record albums, things like that. Uh, the hams. Now it seemed like you told me there was a story about the particular story about those hams. What was the deal on the hams? Was he selling those out of the store? He well, he, he ran a deli, so he had uh, sold sandwiches.
0: But he said he, he wanted us to bring him uh, cure eighty-one hams uh, in a package, of course, and he would put those packages in his display case. And when people come in, they would see the packages of Cure81, which is a good ham, and think that that's what they were getting when uh, they weren't. <laughs> he was he
1: was giving them cheaper hams, but he just wanted cure Ones for looks. Uh, interesting. He probably had some other outlets for those Cure81 hams, too, but uh, uh, he wasn't going to... He, he wanted to make the money, the extra money by selling the cheaper hams and the sandwiches, I'm sure. That's, uh, that's how it is. Remember Willie Camisano, one of the uh, Willie the Rat, one of uh, Savella's people, one of his kind of what well, we'd call a capo. We had his own crew. Uh, he once got popped for selling, he had a small packing plant, rural packing plant, and he got caught selling cancer-eyed beef. You know, if a beef gets cancer and, and you know it, then it's is not to be put into the stream of commerce, into the food stream of commerce. And but yeah, you can buy that stuff real cheap when you you know, you're known as a guy that will buy some diseased animal. Then <laughs> he was butchering that up and selling it. So be careful where you eat, folks, and eat in one of these mob places I always <laughs> although I eat in juniors myself. But uh, so so you and John, you start going out of juniors and junior uh, I assume he liked what you were doing and what he was able to get from you. When, what was he doing with those record albums?
0: He was taking record albums
1: to uh, Tiger's Records, Oh, Tiger okay. That, that makes sense. I was wondering about that. Uh, what, was there anything else that he wanted? He started making other orders for other stuff?
0: No, he basically uh, stayed with those type of items. Okay, so how, how did that go down? How did you do that to deal Sometimes. with him? Sometimes we'd take him inside the deli. But usually he wanted us, he'd park his truck in the, in the alley beside the, alley, the uh, deli. And he sold us, to, we, we always carried what we had in a trash bag. And he'd say, just put it in my truck and then come inside and tell me what I owe you. Or uh, I'll settle up with you the next day. Or sometimes we'd call him and say, we're coming down. And uh, he'd say, how much owe you? And we'd tell him and the money would be in the envelope
1: in the blood box of his truck okay so sometimes he would never even touch it that's right oh interesting mm-hmm. so yeah and i remember we were watching that place at the time i remember that truck out in back but you know it, it was something like that sometimes it was really hard to notice and it was hard to see exactly you know all of that truck and i can't remember of course we knew what you were doing but there had to be other people doing the same thing. Uh, so once you get onto that kind of a, a scheme, how he does it, then you can start identifying his other. Uh, when you're in the surveillance, surveillance team, you can start identifying his other boosters that he had working for him. Because you guys weren't the only ones, I'm sure, were you? I, I'm sure we were. You no, know, I, I didn't see any other. But uh, he would talk about other people. But we yeah, saw. yeah. He was junior. Was a uh, he was a central figure in that subculture. He. I remember, we were on. a, We gave him a. a Cordless Phone, this is back when they first started Cordless Phones and only had like two different channels, and you could just get a a scanner, a Bearcat scanner, and get it to the right channel and listen to him. We were sitting in the second floor of the bus station across the street watching him, and listening to him on that Bearcat scanner, with that Bearcat scanner, and like he had a guy call him up and he said, hey, my son's going to prison eleven Leavenworth, and, and can you make sure that, you know, he gets some kind of help when he gets up there? And Junior said, fine, I can take care of you. And I'm sure he got paid for it. They didn't talk about details, but I, he told the guy to come in and talk to him the next day or two, so I'm sure he paid for it. But Junior, you know, he had connections everywhere, and he could set stuff up, and 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 knew everybody. Uh, he just one of those guys, and plus everybody liked him. <laughs> was he was he really that nice a guy? Yeah, he was. He was very easy
0: to talk to. Yeah, he, he was. Mm-hmm. It, I guess then he
1: felt comfortable with all. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So you, I remember, yeah, one story uh, which we we got to talk about. We had a little slip up almost early in the investigation. Yes, with the uh, with the uh, recording device. What tell me tell the wiretappers about that? We
0: had a recording device. It was called a Nagra, and it was a real small reel to reel recorder, and it weighed probably three or four pounds. And nobody liked to wear it. I didn't like to wear it. John didn't like to wear it, but it was very good. So we put it on John, and uh, he and I went in there one day, and it was uh, duct taped around his ankle, and John and I were sitting there at the table, Junior's waiting on customers or something. I know. I just know he was not at the table with us. And the Niagara came loose from John's ankle and hit the floor. <laughs> and it, it made a pretty good thud when it hit the floor. And, and, of course, he knew what happened, and I heard it, and I knew what happened, and we just looked at each other. And, and John had the wherewithal about him to just, kind of pick his foot up, put his foot on it, on top of it, and just, you know, put his leg back in under the bench and sit there. And, and then during the course of conversation, he was able to to reach down and put that thing back in his sock somehow, <laughs> and we got out of there uh, without anybody knowing about, it. about
1: it. And John yeah. had a big enough foot that he would totally cover that Niagara. Yeah, totally. It was not like a tiny little quarter we have today. Niagara is probably... Four inches by four inches, I would say. At least. At least. Mm -hmm. Uh, But he had a big, he probably had a size 12 foot. I remember that. That was a big dude. (laughs) Yes, he was. Big man. Mm -hmm. I took him to the chiropractor one day. We were babysitting him, and they weren't out working. John was bored and hanging around the house, and he said his back was hurting, and he was angry. God, he was mad. Just everything was pissing him off, and, and he was railing and complaining about, I don't know, some of the commanders in the in the investigation and and you know whatever and, and and he said he wanted to go to the chiropractor so we called into the office and one of the sergeants called the chiropractor and got him an appointment i take him over there by myself you know i'm about five foot nine 160 pounds this guy's about six foot four six foot five about 275 pounds and he's pissed Boy, the whole way he's railing on i was like just get us there and we get there and I sit out in the waiting room, and, and he comes down, he's like a different guy. Uh, whatever that adjustment he did to him, <laughs> I never did figure that one out, but he was like a different guy, and he was the, back to the happy old joking kind of a guy because he was a good guy. He was easy to talk to. He was kind of fun to talk to and just, you know, current events or whatever. <laughs> play cards with us and, and if he was sitting around. That was a long, boring assignment, though, overnight, uh, I'll tell you that. So, how, how did this kind of spin out and start out? You're going to pop Junior with a few reverse things. And what they do, folks, is it's kind of a weak case. It, it's not the best case in the world to make. Is you, you get him, you tape record yourself with some conversation indicating his property is stolen. When, in fact, it's not stolen, which is the weakness in the case. And, but it, he, you, make, you can make a jury believe that this guy believed he was stealing stolen property, and so he had, he had the uh, correct uh, uh, criminal mind uh, to participate in this interaction. And, and, but you, you made several of these right away, but it, it kept going. How come it kept going? Well,
0: John, because of his reputation, he knew a lot of other people in Kansas City uh, that we were buying drugs from, along with... Uh, uh, seeing Junior Bradley, like
1: like uh, uh, Artie Peterman. No, really? And, he he uh, was kind of a well-known thief and drug yes, dealer? Uh, uh, Tom Brown. We
0: went and saw him,
1: made cases on him, uh, a guy named or Seredich, Seredich or Saradich. Yeah, Seredich, yeah, Robert Seredich. He had a uh, uh, jewelry store, a jewelry. Uh, he, and he was a connected guy. And, and,
0: um, and so in addition to uh, the Bradleys, we contacted these other people, and the uh, Ken City Police Department saw this uh, investigation might turn into, I think, more than they expected it to. Really, yeah. With a guy
1: like John Long, who knows everybody like that, you can really, you, you know, you can, you can get in with a lot of people and find out how they work. Just like finding out the little details about how he'd park his pickup out and back, and and they'd leave the stuff in there, and maybe get an envelope out of the glove compartment, or maybe settle up the next day, and. So then you'd see junior come out and getting that, so once you learn how these things work, you know from then on you're, it increases your knowledge base and when you're looking at something, then you know more about what you're looking at, otherwise you know if you're not don't have somebody on the inside like this, you don't even know what you're looking at watching the these professional criminals many times because they're pretty pretty slick and they they blend it in with their normal business that that's the difference in in your kind of low rent you know smash and grab people and and uh, drug dealers, street drug, de- drug dealers, uh, these guys think it out and they're, they're somewhat sophisticated and they'll blend it in with some normal day-to-day activities if they can. That's right. Uh, and so Serditch, he was, you know, he's the kind of guy that uh, uh, all the mob guys went to to, to get jewelry from and, and he bought jewelry from anybody that wanted to go out and steal it. I'm sure that there was jewelry stores robbed all around the United States that the stuff went through Serdich's jewelry store. Uh, but nobody ever ratted him out because he was connected I, somebody they did find a server search warrant on him but i, I can't remember what happened on that uh, uh but mainly uh th- they walked away clean from everything i think you guys probably made a reverse sting case on him but again that's not that big a deal i mean it's a state case and and they might get some time or they might just get probation really here in, in jackson county uh, but do you remember how many how many of these people did did they all plead out or did you have many trials at the end of this i think they all pled out I, I did not go to court on any of them okay they all, they all, all pled out then they it, it, you know it was a pretty easy plea to make uh, you know they're not going to they're not going to do a lot plus they were kind of connected in with the courts and the prosecutors over there with different people and and uh, so it, they would have to take a conviction on it but heck it might even be a misdemeanor conviction the the Really, the, the the importance of this kind of investigation, this reverse sting, is to find out more who's doing what and and how they do it. So when something comes down in the future, you're you, you can more quickly act react to it. If you got something really, you know, some big jewelry theft that happens, and, and you really want to solve this one, well, maybe now you know about Saradich and you know how he works and and a lot about him. Maybe you have developed a couple of informants close to him to find out if maybe that his jewelry could be over at his place and hit him with a search warrant. So uh, that's all in gathering the intelligence as well as making the cases is, is what this kind of investigation was about. Um, who else did you get? Well, John knew uh, Frank Tadero,
0: who ran the Virginian yeah, Now, folks, uh, if you
1: haven't seen my movie Brothers Against Brothers, I hate to keep plugging it, or you've seen the early Savella Spiro War Podcast. Why you need to go back and and it'll kind of get you caught up to speed. Or when you get done, go back and listen to them or watch that movie. But Frankie Daddero owned and ran this Virginia Inn or Virginia Tavern, and uh, that became a hangout and a headquarters almost like for Carl Sparrow. So go ahead. I just wanted to let people know kind of what the Frankie who Frankie Daddero was in the Virginia Tavern.
0: Yes, he owned the he owned the board, and uh, like I said, John knew he knew. They weren't good friends, but they knew each other. So we took some uh, women's clothing into uh, Frankie Tadero to see if he'd be interested in buying them. And uh, he was, he bought them, so we took some more back to him. And uh, the second time, uh, he didn't, it was the wrong size or he didn't like him or something, I think it was the wrong size, but Carl Sparrow was was sitting in uh, in the bar. So Frankie told us just to go talk to Carl. and And prior to that, I don't think either one of us, I know I hadn't, and I don't think John had ever met Carl Sparrow. So we took the closing over to Carl, and, and his daughter uh, was in bar. So uh, he had his daughter tie the clothes on, and they fit, and he, and he bought them. And that started our,
1: uh, our uh, arrangement with Carl Sparrow. Now, now, Carl Sparrow, like I said, I'm going to give you just a little bit of background on him. Was, was he in a wheelchair at that he, time? He was, yeah. Carl Sparrow, and he has three brothers Joe, Mike, and Nick, and, and they were all professional criminals. Carl and Nick were the most professional criminals and really were career criminals. All they really did was crime. The other two had jobs with the teamsters and were kind of what you might call part-time criminals, and, you know, crimes of, of convenience that they might get involved in. Uh, several years before 1973, the Savella organization, who is the ruling La Cosa Nostra of family in Kansas City, had worked with Nick Sparrow, the oldest brother, and, and they ended up sanctioning a murder on him. And so the the three other brothers, uh, as I said in my movie, when you set out to kill one brother, you better be ready to kill them all. And the other three brothers were kind of, uh, they didn't strike back immediately, but they were they had this low-level resentment and, and anger at the Sabella faction. And Carl Sparrow was in the penitentiary at the time when he got back out, he decided he was going to form his own little organization he started trying to recruit people like john long and tom i'm surprised he didn't try to recruit you guys in but he tried to recruit these uh professional criminals the kind of mid-level professional criminals into what he called the sparrow organization and he said that he was claiming that they were going to move in on the Savellas and and take back over and in the virginia tavern about a year or so before this, maybe probably two or three years actually before this, um, the three Spiro brothers, uh, Carl, Mike, and Joe, and Nick's dead, but Carl, Mike, and Joe are all sitting in a tavern, and, and three masked men come in the back door, and one of them with a shotgun chases Carl out the front door and shoots him down as he runs across the street, and the other two turned their attention to Mike and Joe Spiro, and they kill Sparrow and wound Joe, and then they all ran out. Of course, there was it was a whole tavern full of people, so they couldn't hang around and administer any coup de grace or anything. And and they ran out the back door. And so Joe lived and Carl lived, but he was paralyzed. He was in a wheelchair, but he continued his war with the Savellas and continued plotting to try to get back and with the, the against the uh, Savellas. And and we've got one in in the movie. We tell about one. Complex plot. They had to blow up the Savella underboss and got caught doing it. Uh, so um, that's a little bit about you know this whole setup that they're walking into. But you know what a what a coup for the police department that now we've got a state trooper, undercover state trooper. It's like our own Donny Brasco story in a way. It just didn't go that far. Or Joe Pistone working with Carl Spiro directly and going out and stealing stuff that he wanted. So, Tom, now I've interrupted you a little bit too much, but I need people to understand what you stepped into here. Uh, How did that relationship progress with Carl Spiro? Well, he uh, asked us
0: if we could get him some more property, and we said, well, sure. We'd try anyway. So he just started telling us what he would like um, property-wise, and it was mostly clothes. Uh, he bought uh, g- jewelry, so we just it got to where we was meeting Carl. Seems like two or three days a week, and we'd either run into him down at the Virginia Tavern, or he had a car lot on Twelfth Street, and uh, we'd just meet him at the tr- at the uh, at the car lot on Twelfth Street and take him whatever uh, uh, items he had asked us to steal for him, and, and
1: made, as many clothes, like I said, clothes and jewelry. You think he had an outlet for those? Pardon me? Do you think he had an outlet for those? I'm sure he did. I'm sure he did. Yeah. Uh,
0: but it seemed like he, he would always uh, tell us the sizes that he wanted. So I think it's uh, a free family. Yeah, he must
1: have had somebody that's kind of like putting in orders or something. Yes. He Interesting, was. yeah. <laughs> he would tell us, uh, I want a suede suit size 10 for yeah. women. Or ah, like I see. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Uh, so um, how'd you get started dealing with narcotics with him? Just. Uh, uh, the
0: more we dealt with him, the more familiar we became with each other, and uh, he would ask us if we were, he knew John's history, of course, and would ask us if we were interested in things like that, and we said, well, sure we were. So we ended up buying uh, Dilaudid from him on three different occasions. Uh, I bought a uh, .357 from him one day. He, all, he was in a wheelchair, like you said, and he always had a gun under, under one of his legs, and everybody knew that. So we were always uh, we, we was talking about his gun one day, and that came up, and he asked me if I'd like to buy another one or if I needed one. I said, well, sure. So he said, come back the next day,
1: and we did. And he had a .357 uh, that I bought from him. Hmm. Uh, now, he had a connection with a, uh, a doctor up there. And, and, and I guess before we really get into that, the doctor, uh, what was Carl Spiro like for you to, to deal with? He was very... Uh,
0: very easy to talk to. He was very laid back, um, very congenial. Uh, he was he was uh, to the point. Yeah, you know I mean, but he he
1: was very nice to talk. To. No, no problem at all. No problem at all. So he didn't try to talk in any kind of coded terms or, uh, uh, you know, just kind of inferences that he was buying stolen property. It was okay just to talk about it, just straight out. Yes, he made no bones about what we
0: were doing. Oh, Every once in a while. The, the car lot was next to a, a, a bar called the uh, Chestnut Inn, and uh, he would say, "Let's just meet down to Chestnut Inn to talk." And he did that. He told us because he thought his uh, his office was was bugged, and we could go in a bar and talk, and nobody could hear us talk.
1: Mm-hmm. So um, this is fascinating. That uh, that car lot, just a little shack with a few look like used cars without license plates on them. Did he ever sell any cars? Did you ever see him, Did you have a salesman there? Were people coming in? Or could he wheel out and wheel people around and send them out on test drives? Or what, what was the deal with that? No, I never saw anything related to selling any cars happen. No. So it was just a front? Just a front. He never talked about selling any cars? There's no customers in? No. Did he have other kind of like little gang members hanging around there?
0: Yes. We would go in there and there would be the Mike Cousy was there a lot and uh, Frank Angotti was there a lot. And Johnny Mike Cousy was there a lot. A couple times, uh, Frank Tadero was there. You knew who you never knew who you was going to see when you walked in there.
1: So now uh, these other guys you mentioned, they're all out kind of doing their own crimes. But I remember right now. Now, Cousy's were cousins, uh, first cousins of Spiro's. They all grew up together. Frank Angotti, I don't really, really remember him, but... If I remember right, he worked as a, uh, out at a, a shopping center out south here, and it seemed like you told me he, he, wanted to do a, he wanted to help from you guys to do a crime out there. Tell everybody about that.
0: He was the maintenance man at the Ward uh, Parkway Shopping Center, and this inside the shopping center was Montgomery Ward's department store. And the department store had a jewelry department, so he wanted us, him and my kuzi both. They were in on together. Wanted us to, uh, to rob the jewelry department or burglarize the jewelry department. And we met him out there uh, at the at the shopping center, and he took us down in the basement underneath uh, Montgomery Ward's store. And there was a a concrete structure there. I guess it housed uh, air conditioning or pipes or something, but. He had a ladder. He said if we could climb up on top of that, there's about a four-foot space between the top of that structure and the floor of the the, uh, shopping center. And we did. And you could go up there and you could lay down, pull the ladder up behind you and you couldn't be seen from the ground. And he said that uh, uh, he wanted us to uh, uh, burglarize that store and he would help us. He said the best time to do it was on a Sunday evening because uh, the security people on Sundays were a private security company and every other day of the week his security was Kansas or a police department. And he said, uh, so obviously Sunday was the way to do it. Um, he said the guard made these rounds every hour and a half and took him 22 minutes to make his rounds. Hmm. So he, Frank had, uh, had done his research on this and he was gonna, he was gonna help us. He was gonna sit outside with the walkie talkies and him and he and John Cousy both. And they were going to be our lookouts on the outside while we were inside. We were just supposed to lay there until the store closed, wait an hour and a half, and then come out and go burglarize the jewelry store.
1: Dang, as big as John Long was, did he have any trouble crawling up into there and just laying there? <laughs> well, you knew John, and he complained all the way up. <laughs> oh my God, I can imagine. <laughs> but, but he made it. Yeah. Okay. You were fit, you know, like you are now. You were fit back then, and, and you wouldn't have any trouble. But John, I can't even imagine him crawling up that ladder, <laughs> he was cussing all the way. Yes, he was cussing all the way. <laughs> I can imagine every step. <laughs> So did you pull off this burglary? How do you kind of you're, you're in a pickle now? You're going to really do this burglary because no. you've been buying stolen property and sell, sell it to them as stolen property. Now you got to really steal it, and they're going to watch you, right? That's true. How did it go? How was it going to go down that night? And how did you get out of doing the burglary? Well, it's kind of like you say. Now what we're going to do? So <laughs>
0: uh, we got a hold of the Kansas City command staff and and told them what was going on, and, and it was decided that uh, that Sunday when we showed up to do it. Uh, Kansas City had, I don't know, four or six, I don't know, marked patrol cars sitting in the parking lot of the uh, uh, shopping center, you know, just as, as people do, just door to door, just just talking, hanging out, just yeah. visiting, yeah. And so we pulled in a lot and we saw these cars and of course, and then Gotti and Kuzi saw them too. And uh, they said, well, we're not gonna do this, not, not now. And so I said, okay. And they agreed said, no, we no, don't do this today.
1: And so we did not, and it, it never it never came back up. never came back up Maybe no. they, they were there really nervous about it. was there a bug out there somewhere? Yes, I, I don't they didn't suspect you guys apparently because they no, kept I, dealing with you, but they might have been worried that they'd been overheard on a payphone or a, a, a hidden microphone somewhere yeah interesting and and what were their what was their part going to be that night? They were just waiting on the outside for you you guys had to do all the dirty work inside, and they were going to wait outside and take the property, yes. Yes. Was there any deal, was there any talk about the split on that or what, how were you going to get paid? When this first came up, my Cousy told us it'd be 50 50. Uh, The next
0: time we talked about it, it was 60 40, and by the time we got ready to do it, it it was down
1: to 70 30. (laughs) And we were 30. (laughs) You were the 30. Oh, I could have guessed that one. That's (laughs) a typical mob guy deal there. That's. (laughs) <laughs> Part for the course, and then you were going to have to wait until he sold it, right? Probably. And then yeah. you don't know exactly how much he was going to sell it for, right? No. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. That's uh, <laughs> that's a fool's error. <laughs> they should have suspected you guys were, were cops right off the bat when you agreed to all that. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, we didn't have much choice. We I know.
1: Well, I know. I know. But uh, but I, I would have been as suspicious as somebody that was that easy to deal with. Mm-hmm. I think. But these guys were never the sharpest tools in the toolbox. I remember I always said that about this whole little crew. Um, uh, but anyhow, so, so, you know, you guys are really in. You're going out there every day. Now, you, what did you—he had this connection with this medical doctor up in Clay Como. Tell us a little bit about, you know, how that went down. and how, Did you end up dealing with this doctor? Yes, his name was Sam
0: Massassi. And he had a doctor's office in Claycomo, and had one on on Ninth Street. And uh, Carl Spiro ended up marrying the doctor's uh, receptionist. Her name was Laura. So, because we were friends with Carl, he just referred us to the doctor, and the
1: doctor uh, accepted us on Carl's recommendation. Interesting. So, uh, how? And he bought stolen property, if I remember right. Like uh, he did. one great story I thought was he had a farm up in the country. And he got a log splitter. So how did that go down? That's and right. how'd you get paid for that log splitter? Everything we took to the doctor, and he took a lot of clothes,
0: also, but uh, and, and uh, gold jewelry, also, but and the log splitter, of course, that we delivered to his farm. But he would he never paid us cash. He always paid us in uh, prescriptions, and they would be for Dilaudid or Demerol, and. On the street, uh, Demerol, one Demerol tablet then was going for about $30, and one Dilaudid tablet was going for about $50. And so he would write us prescriptions for these, uh, 10 15 uh, I think he gave a subscription for, for 30 for the log splitter, knowing or believing that we were
1: going to, to sell those pills. Mm, so, that's how we would get paid. So $50 Dilaudid at uh, $50 each. That'd be um, $2,500 that you got paid for that log splitter. Well, I think it was $30. Uh, thir- the, oh, $30. Th- okay. yeah, that'd be $1,500. Yeah, $1,500 mm-hmm. for that log splitter. It's probably about what it costs retail, wasn't it? I don't think it's quite that expensive. He that paid us pretty good for that one. He huh. really did. Interesting. Well, mm-hmm. that one, one of the more unusual kind of <laughs> requests I've ever heard of, You know, clothes and jewelry and, you know, uh, food for if you have a, a, a restaurant and cigarettes. I think you, you sold cigarettes to somebody, too, didn't you? Was that Carl? Did you give uh, cases, cartons of cigarettes and sell to him? Junior Bradley liked cigarettes. Oh, Junior Bradley wanted cigarettes. Yeah, he had retail and, outlets uh, for cigarettes. Uh, Joanne
0: Vittoria wanted cigarettes. Who was she? I don't, I don't remember. She was connected yet. with Tiger's Records. Oh, okay, all we right. Started at, the, at, at the end, we started, instead of taking the... the uh, Record albums down to Junior Bradley's place. He told us to take him to her house. Oh. And he would meet us at her house and oh, really? meet us. And then she
1: worked, uh, I think, for uh, for Tiger. Huh. So well, that was interesting. I didn't really realize that before, Tom. That that he had that kind of a connection with Tiger. That he would he would make the deal to get the stolen records, and and then go through one of his employees, and and then Tiger would turn around and sell them. Then he would get a piece of whatever Tiger got. Yes. Wow. It's yes, <laughs> mm-hmm. It's like a big corporation with a division of labor and and uh different uh outlets everybody has a job. Everybody's got their job and does their part in order to make that little economy whirl, that underground uh black market economy whirl along. Mm-hmm. So as we're getting where you you've been doing this how long? A year or so? Was it that long? This- Uh, the whole thing took about six months six months okay I didn't think it was quite a year six months because I was I I was out there off and on for six months I I know it was I was glad when it was done I know that (laughs) that that's a long hard night just while John's in there sleeping because pretty soon your guys are going didn't even have him to talk to you just had whoever was assigned with you out there to talk to and TV went, went off late at night back then. And, uh, I remember I, I tell you one story about that. There's a a guy I worked with one night was a great domino player and we started playing dominoes and he beat me every game all night long for like five hours straight. He beat me in every game. Every once in a while I'd uh, get in like I looked like I was gonna get twenty points and I'd I'd tell him I said Pat I'm sitting in the catbird seat now and then he'd do something that would block it so. <laughs> I waxed my car in the garage at that house one night. <laughs> we all got in trouble because it had a gas fireplace and we were running it. It was winter and we were running it from you know about when the afternoon shift came on. It, it would run until eight o'clock the next morning, and they got a gas bill that was astronomical. They ordered us do not run that gas fireplace anymore. And, and in the end we ended up we lost that house that guy sold it. real estate guy sold it and then they moved to some real crappy dangerous neighborhood in a crappy really small little one bedroom dingy dirty smelly house <laughs> we were it was over pretty quick after that so as it starts winding down you're you're dealing with Carl uh quite often at the car lot you're going down there all the time and uh, uh you know what happened there at the end well, one day we were uh, we were on the way down to see
0: Carl, and he was expecting us. And uh, John and I were in my undercover vehicle, headed headed to the car lot, and we had a police radio with us, of course. And uh, we got a call said, "Don't go, do not go to the car lot. Something has happened. Something bad has just happened." And uh, we were probably 15 minutes away. I don't know. So we turned around and went back to that safe house. And uh, by the time we got back there, we. We understood that there had been an explosion, and Carl was probably uh,
1: dead. Yeah, he was dead, all yeah. right. I tell you what, folks, that, that was an overkill. They put a, enough dynamite underneath that shack that he w- He went in that morning. They were waiting for him, remote control detonated device. They see him go in, and he's in there, and he's just got on the phone for the first time of the day talking to his uh, uh, sister-in-law, actually, one of his dead brother's wives, about something, and—, and The bomb goes off and it blows him and his wheelchair clear up out through the roof and dumps him down in the parking lot. And I've got pictures of that where that you can just see the the wheelchair looks like a pretzel laying out there. And and, uh, uh, he was mangled beyond repair, I understand. I I know one of the crime scene investigators told me that he looked down, he saw something that looked like a like a rolled up something but he couldn't figure out what it was and he picked it up and as he unrolled it he realized it was a patch of skin with a tattoo on it so it was it was a gruesome horrible scene and and tom you just missed that you know you'd been down there 15 minutes earlier they probably would have seen you pull in they might not have set it off but if you'd have just been in that uh, parking lot right in front when it went off you'd have been in a world of trouble I probably wouldn't be here today. You might not be here today. You'd you'd see Carl Sparrow. Like one of those those horror movies where this body, this mangled body just uh, smashes out of the sky onto your windshield or something. (laughs) We could go on forever about that. That's true. But, you know, what I found interesting, we talked about this before, uh, when Tom was in my movie, and we talked quite a little bit then about this, uh, uh, that day when we were filming him, uh, that after... Carl was killed like that. He still, he would see these guys as Frank Engotti and his cousins, the Cousies, and Frank Tadarrow, probably over at the Virginian. And, and what did they say about their their leader getting killed? Nothing. 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 Just like it never happened, huh?
0: Never said a word about it. Oh, we Nobody did. ever mentioned it.
1: Uh, I, I think you said Doctor Masasi may have mentioned it one time, but you know, he was Carl was married to his receptionist, so. Uh, he did he, he was the only person that
0: ever mentioned it, and that was
1: uh, we, we were just sitting
0: in his office, John and I and him uh, just talking one night just kind of wasting time just having general conversation and he brought it up and uh, and he just how bad it was and it was a you know a tragedy that Carla got killed but uh, in
1: passing, maybe talked about for about two
0: minutes yeah and that was it. Yeah.
1: interesting no no none of these guys it was his gang his buddies his cousins no speculation no uh, vows of revenge or anything like that maybe they did among themselves but but they uh that's i find that fascinating you know dr massasi that also reminds me how how did you deal with did you go into his office i mean he had he had a, i know he had a, a thriving practice he had a a, a big practice up in clay and he had a second office i think down here in the city so he was a it was a pretty well-to-do, you know, hard-working doctor. How did that work among with his practice? If
0: we had something uh, that he had told us to get, we'd just put it in a trash bag. Like I said, it'd walk right into his office. And uh, a couple of times, uh, Laura, of course, the receptionist, and she was Carl's wife, she'd say, just go on in. He's with the patient. That's okay, go on in. And we would. We'd go in the examining room, and he'd be with the patient, and he would either talk to us or, or say, well, I'll be right with you. But he... he he was very open with us about what he did, and and there were other people besides us doing the same thing because mm-hmm. uh, we would be down, we'd have to wait. Well, he's going to write them a script, and then he's
1: going to write us a script, and uh, that happened. So he, he was very open. Yeah, he. Uh, I'm sure he was the most popular uh, script writer in uh, Claycomo and Northeast. <laughs> Once the word gets around about that, he might he made more money writing script than he did... Uh, 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 healing people or at least diagnosing people and prescribing regular medicine to them, prescribing you know antibiotics or whatever to them <laughs> so uh, just one more little uh, of the uh see me underbelly of Kansas City there that most people don't know anything about and and they have their whole this whole culture that they're and they're wide open among themselves it's It's always fascinating to me that it's just matter of fact this is just the way it is that's true and uh well, only one time I went to uh, to
0: uh, we always cashed in the scripts we always did, and only one time the the pharmacist called him, and to, to verify that he had given me a prescription and and I could hear the pharmacist end of the phone conversation and uh, and the doctor said yes I gave that to him yesterday so he went ahead and filled it but uh, that's the only time I was ever questioned
1: at the pharmacy. Hmm. So, uh, yeah, that gave you instant credibility that he knew for sure that you had filled that script, but you, you made sure, what do you guys do, just go around to different pharmacies all around the city and the three-county area filling those, uh, or do you have a friendly pharmacist that knew who you were and what you were doing that filled them all? No, we went to two, to two different pharmacies. So they, and they never questioned all these divided script coming through from these same people? Well, he, he suggested the pharmacies that we go to. Ah, okay. So that's where we went. All right. I think, we, I think that says it all right there, doesn't it, Tom? It pretty much does, yes. <laughs> One last thing here. Uh, you had a really interesting little story about, you say, Carl Spiro ended up marrying his uh, receptionist. And you and John had something to do with that wedding. You went to the wedding and the reception, but what else did you do? We were the photographers at his wedding. Uh, you were the formal photographers. You lined people up like the wife, the bride's family and the groom's family and, and took pictures and we did. candid shots. We did. I'll we be darned. And well. Carl, that was at Carl's
0: request. And I think it was because um, some of the articles we got was film and cameras. Yeah. And I'm sure it probably... At some point, we were asked if we knew how to use the cameras, and we said yes. And so it went from there to Carl asking us to be, "Don't you just be our my photographer?"
1: how oh, we are. Did he pay you anything for
0: it? No, he didn't, <laughs> it, it, no, because, because we'd already uh, supplied the clothes for the wedding party. Oh, really? Of, you
1: you, bo- re- you you supplied what they thought were boosted clothes yes. uh, and wedding rings and wedding rings. And wedding rings. And oh rings. my God! Really. <laughs> <laughs> we had supplied the wedding rings for Carl
0: and Laura and uh, most of the clothes for the wedding party. So,
1: that, that Carl Sparrow's wedding, that was his last marriage, that was funded by the Kansas City Police Department, is what you're telling me. Partially, yes, it was. <laughs> Did you rent the event space for him, too? <laughs> Did you get the preacher? <laughs> no, he handled it. Okay, you got the preacher. Mm hmm. You know, I tell you, that's a good one. That is a good one. The only one I have like that. We had an informant once that had a universal life ministry certificate that you can get online. And but that guy can marry somebody. So he he was had the the crook that he was ratting out on. Uh, Ask him to to marry him and his uh, his uh, fiance, shall we say? Because he was in a— hospital room, and he'd had a heart attack or something. He was afraid he might die, and he wanted to marry this gal before he died, so this guy went over and married the, the crook that he was informing on that day. <laughs> we joked about whether we should wire him up and tape it or not, but we we decided not to. <laughs> There's no use taking a risk for nothing. <laughs> Well, that's a good one. That, that is one of the better ones I've heard that the Kansas City Police Department financed practically the whole wedding of a mob guy that they were working on. <laughs> that is a good one, Tom. <laughs> we did. <laughs> so when this went down, it went down hard and fast. Let's, let's talk about that a little bit before we get out of here. Okay.
0: Um, like I said, we'd been working about six months and, and it was drawing to a close. And we were dealing with uh, Sam. And Charlie Scola, uh, at the uh, they had a grocery store, and uh, we we were taking property to them, and and uh, food and gold chains and clothes and Johnny and Mike Cousy worked out there, and that's how we kind of got connected with
1: with them. was through Johnny and Mike. See, and, and the Scolas they were more connected to the Savellas than uh, than Sparrows in a way. So that's that's interesting that. Uh, their great-grandfather, grandfather, I think, was uh, was killed by a sheriff that stumbled onto a mob hit, a famous mob hit in 1933, I think. This uh, county sheriff pulled up as uh, a guy named Charlie Gargada and Tano Lococo were shooting down a, a bar owner right out in front of his bar. And and they had a getaway car sitting there, and the sheriff jumped out and he saw this gun battle was going on. He first shot into the car and killed Sammy Scola, or Sammy the Hog, they called him in 1933, and and these two guys, these Scola brothers you're just mentioning, are are some of their, the progeny of him. So uh, you you were really getting. It's too bad they couldn't have kept you guys going. You're really getting in with a lot of people. But go ahead with your story on on how this went down. You're you're dealing, you're selling them stuff, and you're selling all kinds of people's stuff by now. We were, uh, like I said, we were selling, talk, uh, talking to the Scolas
0: and. They had a grocery store, and and we told them we could—they had said that they would take any kind of food products. So we told them we could probably come up with a uh, a semi-load of coffee. uh, I'll bet their eyes lit up at that. They did. They really liked (laughs) liked that. They said we could bring it right straight to the store and unload it at the store. We said, okay, it would take us a few days to put that kind of a deal together. So we went down uh, to—we just left town, John and I, along with some uh, Kenza— Police officers went down to Columbia again and just rested for two or three days. That was that was the plan. John had a girlfriend, and she didn't like uh, John being away. Even though they weren't together, they could still you know he was calling her at night, I think, and but she didn't like him being out of town. And she knew that what he was doing, right? Yes, she she knew a lot. She yeah. sure did, and so. Um, the fact that John was out of town, I guess, just just upset her. So I was told she went to a bar, uh, down on, Independence Avenue or some some street, and and got pretty well lit, and just started telling everything she knew to, I guess, whoever would listen.
1: Yeah, and that word will spread fast in that, that neighborhood. But
0: spread, spread very fast, and and that word got back to uh, Doctor Massassi, and so I was told that uh, Massassi put out a. Uh, a contract on John and I, on one on each of us. So they called us. I guess it was the second morning we were out of town. They called us. I was in a motel room, and the Highway Patrol called me, and he said, "Are you okay?" I said, "Yeah." Why? And he said, "Well, we've got a little information here we need to share with you." So uh, the Highway Patrol came to the motel, and Kansas City Missouri Police Department drove to the motel, and and it ended right there. Uh, I went to Jeff City. Uh, the police department put John in the car, drove him back to Kansas City, put him in a motel up here. And uh, I, I went to Jesse. I got another car, a different car, and drove home. And when I drove in my driveway, it was dark by then, uh, there said a Kansas City police car in my driveway. And I walked in and there said a Kensey police officer at my kitchen table <laughs> drinking coffee. Yeah.
1: And my wife's standing there and I hadn't I hadn't said and anything. She's going, What are you doing? Because <laughs> yeah, I hadn't told her what I was doing. And he wouldn't and he probably wouldn't have known other than just yeah. go up there and babysit. That's right. And so she was wanting to know what was going on and I
0: and uh, I said, Well, just give me a minute, I need to run here to the motel and check on John. Yeah. I'll be right back. And the Cansey uh, police officer was very nice. He said, Take your time. I got this. No, don't worry about it. So I went to the motel, saw John, police, police everywhere at that motel. And uh, turned around, and went back home, and he's still there. Got a the chance to explain to my wife what had what just happened, yeah. what we've been doing you know, for the last six months. <laughs> she didn't even know exactly, did she? <laughs> I didn't think she did, but she knew more than I thought she did. Oh, no, really? She really did. Uh, and ended up being uh Kansas City, uh, had a car in my driveway for 30 days after that straight. Wow. And then uh, I, I was given the option uh, to keep them there or just if they would just periodically check on my house. And I said, I just periodically check on my house.
1: And I was given the option to move. I didn't. You, uh, you just stayed here in Kansas City, kept working narcotics, if I remember right. I did.
0: Yeah, I did. So that it ended abruptly. It ended uh, uh, quicker than we wanted to. But it was, I think, fairly
1: successful. I had a good time. Yeah, it was very successful. And it's too bad it couldn't have kept going because you guys were onto to something. Although you would have. I guess they must have been thinking about taking it down because they weren't going to let a whole load of coffee run, go. They weren't going to finance a load of coffee to the Skola's store. <laughs> no, they wouldn't have let that load walk. They were no. going to have to. They must have been planning on taking it down anyhow. Yeah. And take down the skulls. That would have been a nice lick to take them down with that load of coffee. That would have, <laughs> that would have rattled the Savella the faction. <laughs> then they would have been wondering, well, what else? You know, who else has been dealing with these guys? Right. You know, I would imagine that uh, Masasi, once the all the facts came out that you were actually a state trooper, I would imagine all talk of, of any— uh, murder contracts went off of you. It didn't ever went off of John I'm sure of that but it probably went off of you if if there is such a thing. If you can recall a contract that's kind of like TV stuff but he probably just went out and said hey you know I'll give somebody $10,000 to go kill these guys.
0: <laughs> I, w- I was told by the, uh, uh, the assistant U.S. attorney at the time that uh, he had a conversation with an attorney just immediately after that word spread and it
1: the contract for withdrawal. Yeah, interesting. Mm-hmm. Of course, once the word's out, you know how well, some scumbag out there has heard that. You know, they, it's not like they have a you know a, a, a text list of everybody that knows that. <laughs> <laughs> you still have a certain. That's uh, right. <laughs> there's a certain uncomfortableness in that for a while, I would imagine. That's true. You never know, because uh, these guys are not that disciplined. Well, Tom, this has been great. I, I really appreciate you coming in. And uh, actually, for the second time, folks, I, I have to admit to a little mistake here. The last time I did this, I forgot to turn the tape recorder on. Oh, let me look. Oh, yeah, it's still recording. <laughs> I got an hour in here, so <laughs> we got something. <laughs> we don't know what it is, but we got something. Uh, but uh, and, and another thing, you, you probably want to listen... After the end of this, because I'm going to add a little, little clip on the end of it, it's some conversation Tom and I had before we started this. It's not really about policing or anything. It's 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 uh, really interesting uh, information about Lambeau Field and the uh, Green Bay Packers. Now, that's the only tidbit I'm going to give you, so uh, listen to the little after show if, uh, after the whole total ending of this thing, and and I think you'll be entertained and uh Enlightened and educated about uh, Green Bay Packers and Lambeau Field and and are one fan in Kansas City, Missouri.
0: <laughs> I think there's more than one. There. Oh, there's more than one. <laughs>
1: yeah. Well, you know they beat us in that first Super Bowl, and now we're looking for a uh, remake. By the time this or a, a meet up again, by the time this comes out, you know they we will that that will have been satisfied, or that that we'll know who played who in the Super Bowl and who won. I predict the Chiefs and. Tom, who do you predict? Packers. <laughs> the Packers. Oh, my God. All right, folks. If you have a friend or relative that has a problem with drugs or alcohol, make your first call to First Call. Call 816-361-5900. Uh, go to their website, www.firstcallkc.org. And, you know, I have a website, www.ganglandwire.com. And all my uh, if you subscribe to it, you'll get an email every time one of my podcasts comes out got my store on there. If you'd like to donate, um, you can use a credit card on there and donate. If you make a donation of $25 or more, I'll send you a copy either of uh, Brothers Against Brothers, Gangland Wire, or uh, my book, Leaving Vegas, How FBI Wiretaps Ended Mob Domination of Las Vegas Casinos. Uh, But I'll send you a a coupon to uh, link to get a Kindle version of that or the hard hard copy, whichever you want. I got my Kansas City Mob Tour app. It's in the iTunes store only. It's got a long story why it's not on Google. Um, I'm going to... Uh, uh, Try to go up to Chicago this summer, or probably with my friend Kate on motorcycles, and and do some uh, some tours of some mob sites up there, and some uh, live or some videotaping of me at uh, some other people at the different mob sites. Maybe we can get Frank Calabrese to take us on a tour while we're up there. So that would that will be fun. We'll look forward to doing that later in the summer. And uh, Tom, I really appreciate you coming here. Thanks a lot. Thank you, and I've enjoyed it. All right. Good night, all you wiretappers. Okay, Okay, that's counting. You see that counter? (laughs) That means it's recording. (laughs) We're on. uh, Testing. Let me me get some earphones in there. All right. This side of this thing here where the sound's going so I can make sure the sound is good. One, two, three, four. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. Okay. I think we're good, Tom. Go ahead and. and uh, um, you're kind of a big Packers fan, aren't you? I am. <laughs> How did you get to be a Packers fan? You know, my, my dad was a Packers fan, yeah. and I. Are they anybody from? They from? You no, know, from here. Green Bay, Wisconsin. Everybody's Wisconsin. from here. Everybody's from here. From here no, just no, got to be Packers fans. But what got me was... Uh, what would you do in that first Super Bowl with the Chiefs? <laughs> I, I rooted for the Packers. Oh, my God. And I'll root for the Packers in a couple of weeks. Ah, you hope.
0: I sure will. So everybody's
1: predicting a repeat with the ho- Chiefs coming hope, out on top this time. I hope it
0: happens. And I'll, I'll absolutely root for the Packers. All right. I sure will. We go up, my, my wife and I go up at least once a year to Green Bay mm-hmm. and watch them play. Okay. And it's just a different... Totally different. Totally okay. different. You wouldn't even know it was the same pro football. It's just a different attitude, a different approach. Uh-huh. Just
1: how they do things. It's a lot more homespun up there, I think, too. And it mm-hmm. doesn't seem quite so almost corporate-like. Uh, yeah, I mean, just- it's only 100,000 people, yeah. Green Bay yeah. is.
0: And it's in it like, <clears throat> like your house right across the street is Lambeau Field. Yeah. And there's, there's houses all the way around Lambeau Field. And it's it's an amazing place to watch in a football game huh, and to kick off everybody, in, everybody sits down yeah. and you can sit out and watch a football game oh really and unlike these it's more b- controlled crowd is that
1: what you're saying yeah. and,
0: they got no sense to sit down yeah but a bunch out here, you go out there and stand up for three and a half hours. Yeah, I couldn't do that. Get drunks and people you know, up there. And if you stand up, somebody will tell you to sit down.
1: Yeah, I'll be darned. Yeah, they do.
0: Uh-huh. I mean, you can stand up, something happens, you stand yeah, up. Yeah, right. Just the but then the you game, sit back down when you they get sit started. sit down
1: and you watch a football game. Rather than those drunks standing up going, "Hey." Yeah, that's right. Somebody will <laughs> sit your ass down.
0: I'll be It's, a, it's a totally different atmosphere. Be totally down. different. Interesting. I just love it. <laughs> And I'm an owner.
1: <laughs> You're an owner? I'm an owner. You have a piece. I, I remember uh, something about I that.
0: When they, when was it, seven, eight years ago, I don't know, maybe longer than that, they yeah. enlarged the stadium again, and that's yeah. how they do things up oh, there. okay. They sell a certificate, You get a piece of paper, and it's on mm-hmm. the wall. Mm-hmm. And you buy it, and that money finances the uh, stadium improvements. Uh-huh. And they, they added another eight or 10,000 seats up there when they did it. But anyway, you and, and that's an owner, and you are an mm-hmm. owner. And they have a owners' meeting every June or July, depending, and they have it in Lambeau Field, and we all go up there and we vote on the board of directors, just mm-hmm. like oh, really? any, any corporation uh-huh. would. Only got the six, you know, sixty thousand owners. Yeah, and it's a really cool. Different, cool thing.
1: I, I, I remember reading something about yep. that, but I'd forgotten about it, that. It's interesting. It's a great,
0: I just, I just think the world of how they do things up there, totally yeah. different. Yeah. Totally. And,
1: and they create a real connection with the fans, more oh, of a connection yeah. than.
0: Oh, yeah. Like uh, last weekend, they had to scoop snow.
1: The fans do it. Fans came out and scooped the snow off. $15. <laughs> <night>. <laughs> yeah. Oh, Lined did. up at 2 o'clock in the morning yeah. to scoop snow. Probably had to turn people away. Yeah, yep. I imagine they did because they asked
0: for seven hundred. Yeah, and then they cut that back to three fifty because they didn't get the snow they thought they was going to get. There. Yeah, but um, yeah, it's a it's a they it's a a whole neighborhood town
1: thing. It's oh, just a small town. That's atmosphere. it. That's great. Yeah, Here, there's yeah, something yeah. left like that because <laughs> everything's got to be bigger than ever in yeah, corporate. That's right. Oh, my yeah. son lived down at Fort Worth. You ought to see that uh, Dallas set oh, up that's down there. Sad. You know, it's just like this is just some big corporation that has this product that they yeah. create out there in that huge, big factory. Yes. And that's the way it feels to me. Yes. But they love their Dallas and their Cowboys down there, so I don't know. I can't stand the Dallas
0: <laughs> I root for two teams every, every week, the Packers and whoever's playing the Cowboys. That's the two teams I root for every week. We have a good time up there. Oh, well, yeah, it sounds like it. And we drive up. We, we used to fly up, but the last three years, we've driven up because mm-hmm. it only takes 10 hours. Yeah. And then you've got your car, you don't have to
1: fight the yeah. damn airport. Plus, or... I'd rather take a beating and go through the oh, airport oh, and oh, fly oh. an airplane oh. anymore. <laughs> it's not worth it. I'm happy to drive eight or 10 hours well, rather sure. than doing that. If it's, it's a two-day it. deal, I may say, okay, let's just, you know, because mm-hmm. I don't want to take the time. Right. particularly, but right. uh, although now that I'm not doing that much, I might as well take I, I the time. Have, what else you got to do? <laughs> I like to drive. I do too, but I got ain't nothing else going on.
0: Just <laughs> get in the car. And, and that way, if you do see something you need, throw it in the car and bring it home. Yeah. You don't have to worry about yeah. packing it on the damn yeah. plane. Or yeah, interesting. Whatever. But, yeah, I highly recommend. It. If, you're, if you're a fan of football, yeah. go to go the Packers go Field yeah. one time.
1: Huh. Interesting. Yep. Okay. okay. All right. I'll probably, I may add that here at the end. Folks, if uh, you heard that from the mouth of a, a diehard Packers fan, if you're a real fan of pro football, you need to go out to Lambeau Field. This will be the end of the – kind of the special little uh, uh, extra episode at the end of this one. Uh, I'll cut this out and put this at the end. Okay. You don't mind, do you? I don't care. You didn't say anything bad. I don't care. It was care. really no, in- I I'm tell you, a Tommy, thing. it was really interesting. <laughs> I not
0: going to say anything bad about the Packers.
1: <laughs> Okay, let's get this started. Okay. <coughs> and, and the only thing you need to watch is like, is rubbing across that cord that goes up through there.
0: So, it, it,
1: its it's good but you just have to watch it okay like
0: okay like like
1: that right there oh okay, it, it, okay. Then, well sometimes when you so yeah don't put it in your hands i don't think right because you move your hands a little bit i, I think you're good like that oh just okay okay all right okay <laughs> Music provided by our good friend and super fan from Portland, Oregon, Casey McBride. Thanks, Casey.